0: James chapter 5. James chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, we will have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room in little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take that physical one home. The reason for that is incredibly simple. We believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of important things. But chief among those important things, the, the top of the mountain for all those really awesome important things, is that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. We want you to know God. We want everything in and about and around your life to be shaped by uh, knowing Jesus, filtered through the lens of knowing Jesus. And if the scriptures, his word, or what he uses to do that in you, uh, just do the little math problem in your head. Like, it puts you at a disadvantage not to be chasing after him in the, in the scriptures. And so if you don't have a copy of your own that you could call yours, take that physical one home, and uh, I'll call it the best part of my week. Uh, welcome to the penultimate installment, which I, I look every time we do a series to be able to say penultimate. Um the penultimate installment of our effort to walk through the, the letter of James together. Uh, so we got one more week to go after today. Uh, James has taught us to say, if the Lord wills, uh, we'll finish this off uh, next week. It's my personal opinion. Hopefully you agree. Uh, but James has been a really good letter to us. Uh, I, I think I think it's been incredibly valuable, um, incredibly practical. I think it's helped us think through some uh, really functional, important dynamics uh, around here. And um, we started all this stuff back off uh, in in the middle of January, and so uh, there, there's it's been some seasons in our church uh, in that time. So James has been a really good friend. Uh, maybe you consider yourself one of the uninitiated, though. Uh, whether you uh, this is your first time here, or maybe one first couple of times here, or maybe just for you, seven sleeps. Since since the last time we talked about this kind of creates a fog for you. All right? uh, so what is, what is the book of James? Um, well, it's, it's a letter. It's a letter by uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus, a guy uh, who uh, the Gospels tell us was not a follower of Jesus uh, early on, uh, but it took him a while to, to finally come to faith. But man, when he did, he, he, he got there, and he got there in a hurry. Uh, James uh, ends up becoming uh, the leader, we think, or at least a leader of uh, the church in Jerusalem. He, he writes a letter of the Bible. Uh, several years after this is written, uh, he is finally martyred for his faith. James got there, all right? Uh, that's, that's who James is. Uh, now, the letter that bears his name, what is that? Well, it's a letter, general letter, written to all, kind of all Christians. Uh, we think that the letter was written somewhere in the early to mid-40s A.D., which puts it incredibly early on in the timeline of the New Testament writings, maybe possibly even the very first thing written in the New Testament. Uh, it would predate the Gospels, predate the writing of Acts, predate the, most of the epistles, or, at least, or maybe even all the epistles. Uh, now, um, and so uh, that would put it incredibly early on. Uh, it would put it in a time period when the early church uh, was just a few years removed Uh, just a handful of years removed uh, from some persecution that caused them to scatter out from the city of Jerusalem. We read about that story in Acts chapter 8, right? Um, In Acts chapter 8, heavy persecution drove them out from one central location to a bunch of different locations away from this one city. Locations that are culturally and demographically very different from Jerusalem. They're They're less Jewish and far more Gentile. All right, we could say it that way. And so that created a brand new dynamic uh, in the early church that needed to be carefully thought through. Now, the point of James's letter, if I were to, dis- to distill the point of James's letter down to one thing, it would be to address the relationship that exists between what we believe and what we do. That's the dynamic there. A major debate in the early church that was, uh, was about uh, what practical rules new Christians, especially Gentile Christians, needed to, to follow uh, in order to, to, to be seen as living a holy and pleasing life before the Lord. In other words, is it possible for someone to authentically claim a right and reconciled relationship with God because, you know, they have faith? Can someone authentically claim that and do that if nothing in their life and actions evidenced that right relationship? It's a massive question in the early church. And James waits into that debate, and his answer is no. Faith is in the finished work of Jesus is the only thing that can save someone. That's absolutely clear. It's all over the Bible. Your actions, or in James's vocabulary, your works, your works cannot save you, period. But at the same time, authentic faith never exists in isolation. Authentic faith will naturally produce works consistent with that authentic saving faith. It fleshes out and gives proof to that authentic saving faith. It brings that authentic faith to fulfillment, James argues. So what are some of the you know, supposed works that, or that are produced by an authentic faith then? Give me some examples. Put some meat on the bones, James. Well, he does that. He says, he says it will humble you before the Lord. An authentic faith will humble you before the Lord. It will also affect how you treat others, both inside the church and outside the church. But he's not done. He also says it will cause you to bridle your tongue, be the master of what you say and what's coming out of your mouth, instead of that being the master of you. It will reveal the sin still buried deep in your heart and will spur you on to root that sin out for a better prize. And then last week we, we discovered that an authentic faith will give us eyes to see that the comforts and luxuries of this world aren't always what they appear to be that the prizes quote-unquote of this world are often not prizes at all the point of James's letter is to address the relationship that exists between what we believe and what we do but the structure of James's letter has some added nuance to it James gives us uh, gives his letter some very specific bookends. I don't know if you noticed that as you're reading through it on your own. In chapter 1, he acknowledges the persecution that they had and the, and the trials that his audience had faced, very real persecution of trials, uh, something a lot bigger than it rained on our picnic day, right? It, like, it was big stuff. Right? But he also reframed those trials into something that God is actually using to produce good things in them, both now and for eternity. He says that they'll actually produce joy, Which sounds like a crazy idea. The kingdom of God is actually upside down from this world. That was chapter 1. Now we're in chapter 5, the very end of the letter. And here in chapter 5, James is going to return to that same theme of trials. But he's going to do it with this authentic living faith in their back pocket. So look at verse 7 with me. Chapter 5, verse 7. It says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Let's call it time out there. All right, so uh, we, we tagged this first part of verse 7 uh, onto our text from last week, right? You know, so we looked at uh, the, the first section of chapter 5 last week, and we, we made sure to get that little bit of chapter 7 uh, in there too. And we did it to make sure that we understand how James ultimately wanted his audience to see the comfort and the luxury of their kind of less persecuted neighbors. We could say it that way, right? All right? And, and the answer is he wants to see them as temporary. He wants them to, to see comfort and luxury as something that has an obvious shelf life. And that cashing in eternal joys for temporary ones is a really, really unwise investment. That's his message. The hard pill to swallow, though, I don't know if you've noticed this, is that eternal investments very rarely ever seem like the obvious choice in the moment you're standing in. Anybody else that like that? Do you struggle with that like I struggle with that? looking around at the luxuries and comforts of everybody else and you start playing the comparison game. Always looking upstream instead of downstream like we talked about. And in that moment, your seeming lack of comfort and luxury starts to sting just a little bit. You start to get to that, what about me itch? Where's my turn? So here in verse 7, James remind, reminds them, no, no, no. be patient. Be patient. Our God is a promise-keeping God, and He has promised that He will come again soon. Notice, though, that James does not say, How dare you? That's not where he goes with it. He doesn't launch into a critique of their desires and say that their desires are misplaced. He doesn't offer some party line polemic on deservedness or knowing their place in society. No, he points them to the reality that their hope rests in the character of the one who could be trusted to do exactly what he said he would do. Our Lord is coming soon. Be patient, therefore, brothers. Keep reading. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Verse 8, you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. All right, I don't know if you notice this, but we're getting a lot of rain this week. It's affected some things we wanted to do. We had three different outside events this week. All of them got Chaos. We've been getting enough rain that it's pretty easy to measure it compared to what we all understand as normal, right? It feels off. Well, first century Judah, Syria, Asia Minor, all the places that the audience of this letter are located, they had their own version of normal too. James paints the picture here of a farmer understanding, deeply understanding the regular rhythms of what he he knows to expect for his crops. We're told that they know to expect both the early and the late rains. During that time period, that part of the world would get almost all of its rain for the year in the fall, winter, and spring. Summer is incredibly dry in that region of the world. Uh, and and Because of that, the growing season, the, the season where you got your plants in the ground and you want them to grow, it's fall, winter, and spring. You don't grow stuff in the summer in that part of the world. But James explains here that a big chunk of that rain comes at the very beginning of the growing season and then another really big chunk of that rain comes at the very end of that growing season and it's predictable. It's it's happening every year over and over and over and over again. Now, uh, And so much so that the regular rhythm for a farmer is to beat the rains to get the plants in the ground and then also to wait out the second rains before they harvest. They've They've got some markers that they can measure by. Now, if a farmer knows, and has repeatedly experienced that regular rhythm, how do you think all of his farming buddies and neighbors see him if he starts getting really, really antsy bef- like a month before the second rains come? What you doing, Bob? <laughs> what you jumping the gun for? You know, we go through this every year, right? And obviously, James' you know, analogy breaks down eventually. Farmers have really good reasons sometimes to... to ignore the rhythms and go with other variables they're seeing around them that's obviously true that's clearly true but the experienced farmer has a steady hand right he doesn't let the what if variables the pretend variables outweigh the real variables he doesn't rush to judgment he knows to be patient he's been through this over and over and over again and he's developed a cooler head about these things or we could just use James's word. He's patient. And so in verse 8, James says, You also be patient. Establish your heart for the coming of the Lord. What does it mean to establish? It means do the work now of shoring up what you believe about God so that when t- temptation comes, uh, comes like to run in the opposite direction, to not trust Him, to, to fail to be patient when that temptation comes, do the work now to, to bolster yourself, solidify yourself, so when that moment comes, you're ready for it. You've got a steady hand just like the hypothetical farmer does. Follow Jesus, I'm well aware that we're, we're not farmers. not farmers. I don't have that in my DNA either. Um, That We we don't have the regular rhythms of the rain to teach us to be patient on the Lord. That is true. But but we have the eternally consistent character of our God. Like, maybe that's a better teacher. We all in agreement about that? Has He proven Himself to you? Over and over and over and over again to a point where it's really kind of ridiculous to doubt Him now? He keeps his promises. And one of his promises is that he will come again soon. And no, I have no idea how many days stand between today and that day. And sometimes it it absolutely feels like it's too far out there in the distance to matter. But here's what I do know it's another day closer. If he can be trusted, it's another day closer. James says that the coming of the Lord is at hand. And because the coming of the Lord is at hand, verse 9, it kind of seems like an obvious next logical truth. Look at it. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. All right, so what is forgetting the imminent return of the Lord do? to, you know, fickle hearts that get easily distracted by the prizes of this world. Like, what does that cause us to, to do? Well, according to James here, it causes us to say dumb things to each other. That's what he says. The simple truth is that the church, and I mean church with a capital C, so the church, right? We don't busy ourselves with complaining and bickering and infighting when our eyes are set upon what God has actually called us to set our eyes upon. It just doesn't happen. Bickering and complaining will always seem like a ridiculous idea in our healthier moments. In our broader network of churches here in New England, I, I, I get the privilege of, of kind of stepping into a lot of different local church contexts. I, I get invited to speak sometimes. I sit and talk to pastors and their lay leaders at other times, help them kind of hammer out different issues that they're thinking through. And I, I'm in a privileged seat to be able to, to see a lot of victories and, unfortunately, a whole long list of junk as well. Right? I, 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 I've seen some things. Um, without fail... Like, without fail, if I walk into a church and they're kind of wrapped up in the middle of some kind of nonsense inter-church squabble, whether they're fighting about who gets to be in charge or they've got to buy something and there's 20 different opinions about what that thing ought to be, or sometimes it's deciding which ministries they've been doing for 30 years need to be kept up because they're working really well, and which ones need to be shelved because they're not working so great. Without fail, if I walk into a church that's in the middle of an ugly fight, it's pretty easy to figure out that that church has lost sight of at least one, if not two, incredibly important things. But honestly, usually it's both. The first thing they've lost sight of is their mission to make disciples of all nations. And the second thing they've lost sight of is the finish line, which creates all the urgency for the mission to make disciples of all nations. When you lose the mission and the finish line, all the church has left to do in that moment is gather around a social cause or gather around a political cause. It becomes an affinity club where you've got to devote yourself to the task of critiquing everyone outside of the affinity. And this is what we see in the liberalizing mainline churches, and it's equally what we see in the fundamentalizing independent movements. It's all over the place. But here's the problem. To play that game, you will always have to keep refining the boundaries of the affinity. you got to keep making the circle smaller. So eventually, the fringe outs- insiders must eventually become the apostate outsiders. And when that happen- happens, y- you got reason to grumble. In fact, that's all you got left. But what does James say? He says, behold, the judge is standing at the door. Lord willing, in a few months we're going to study the seven letters to the churches of Revelation. Um, At the moment, that's our plan for the fall. We'll see what God does with it. But uh, Those letters are all about, if you've never read them before, those letters are all about Jesus as the Lord of those churches uh, giving his verdict on their faithfulness. You're doing well in A and B. You're not doing so great in X, Y, and Z. Uh, and the threat is that if they don't get their act together, he's got, them reason, he's got no reason to allow them to continue being a church, uh, uh, one of his churches. And so he'll take their proverbial lamp stand away. That's the, that's the threat in those letters. And James paints a similar picture here, right? The judge, and he uses a capital J, the judge is standing at the door. He's just waiting there. The one who gave us the mission and, and gave us a specific promise of the finish line. He's got an opinion about how we're doing. And grumbling, it's not an attractive look to him. I don't think he likes that one. But we don't combat against grumbling by biting our tongue and simply getting over it. No, according to James here, we combat our grumbling by refocusing ourselves on what God has called us to focus on. Church, a patient expectation on that the Lord is coming soon, it will inevitably create an urgency for the mission that we've been handed. And when those things are firmly in place, all kinds of interpersonal conflict will naturally get smoothed over. You want to know one of the reason for that? It's because you're 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 not only too happy and focused to find things to grumble about yourself, but also you can't really be bothered by or even care what all the other people who are grumbling have to say. Like it doesn't even matter to you. They fade into nothing but white noise in the background, and usually they leave and find somewhere else where where it's like someone will entertain their grumbling. It's kind of (laughs) nice. They just go away. A patient expectation that the Lord is coming soon will fix all kinds of problems. However, a patient expectation that the Lord is coming soon will not prevent you from being on the receiving end of some pretty heavy trials and persecution. Look at what James says next in verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who have remained steadfast, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord, has compassion, er, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. All right, so several years ago, when I was a much, kind of much younger person in ministry, I know this might sound really, really, really hard for you to believe, but I used to have even more immaturity and bravado than I do today. I don't know, just think about where the level used to be. Woo! <laughs> You've seen the stereotype, right? I was ready to run through a brick wall for Jesus, and if I could do that while also uh, like preaching, like man, just turn me loose. I would say really dumb things like, uh, "I'm really gifted and feel called to be a prophet," because you know prophets they say the hard thing; they don't really care what people think. And thus saith the Lord. Right? By God's grace, He puts much smarter and wiser men in my life who would just slip in the little comment here and there and. Oftentimes, after I would say dumb things like that, they would say something else like, hey, you know all the prophets died, right? (laughs) All their stories end with them being slaughtered by God's people because God's people refused to listen. If you've been in church for more than 20 minutes, you're familiar with the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, right? Right? In Hebrews 11 it walks down this list of all these people who did really awesome, amazing things for Jesus. Uh, in chapter 11, verse 17, it says, By faith, Abraham, when texted, tested, was offered, uh, offered up Isaac. Uh, in 29, it says, uh, By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on, as on dry land. Verse 30, uh, By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. What stories, right? And if that wasn't enough, uh, the writer of Hebrews ramps the tempo up in verse 32. All right? In verse 32 of Hebrews 11, it says this, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and of David and Samuel and of the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. Somebody point me to the nearest brick wall. I'm ready to go. Incredible stories of faithfulness. Incredible stories of God bringing what can only be described as victory, right? I mean, who wouldn't want a story like that? I do. Bet you do too. Who wouldn't want God to do those massive things in our own lives? There's a good, good reason why that part of Hebrews 11 is often quoted and referenced on a regular basis. But there's also a good reason why m- most of those quotations stop in the middle of verse 35. And so we keep reading. Some were tortured, <laughs> refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Verse 36, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment they were stoned. Uh, they were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Hey, do you think the phrase and some were sawn in two would make for a really cool Christian tattoo? Like like kinda of getting it wrapped around my bicep in the Greek, I think it'd be it'd look awesome. Jesus called the city of Jerusalem the city that killed its prophets and stoned those who were sent to them. Absolutely, the prophets were used by God to do amazing things by their faith and by their obedience. They stood their ground. They spoke powerfully. Uh, they, They were used powerfully for God. Absolutely, they faithfully declared the word of the Lord. And then, immediately on the heels of that, They learn why we have the phrase, don't kill the messenger. Because killing the messenger is something that Israel made a steady practice of in those days. James points to the prophets here. Yes, faithful. Yes, used powerfully. But also, each and every one of them were a clear example of suffering and patience that, according to James, we ought to emulate. Oh, you're facing trials, huh? Yeah. Yeah, that's normal for God's people. That's that's the task. I mean, just look at the prophets, right? But, but how did Hebrews eleven describe them? The world was not worthy. The Bible doesn't sweep their stories under some kind of rug and act like they're an exception to the rule. When when you do what God has called you to do, everything's going to go well. And then there's you know there's sometimes it doesn't go so well. No, no, the Bible puts their stories on the top shelf when it comes time to give honor. And let's be honest, even even though we all instinctively understand their stories as beautiful, even though we all immediately get pricked by the feeling of, yes, that is right and good to lay yourself down like that, those are not at all the kinds of stories that our world attempts to celebrate, and it's definitely not the story that you and I want for ourselves. At least I'll be honest, I don't. But if the prophets weren't enough for you, well, James takes the next step and lists off, off the OG suffering saint, Job. If you're not familiar with Job's story, maybe you never read that story in the Bible, it's not a pretty one. A lot goes wrong. Unlike the prophets who walked into the dangerous situation knowing that they were doing something mighty for the Lord, uh, Job just kind of gets blind to, blindsided by something he doesn't even understand. It just wrecks him. God allows Satan to take everything uh, away from Job but his life. And then after that, he gets the cherry on top. Both his wife and his friends start questioning Job why he deserved all that suffering. That's a fun day. Yet Job remains steadfast, we're told. And in due time, God restored him. And so with Job's story in our pocket, here's the question. What should we do when everything in our world is falling apart? What do we do? What should we do when nothing works right? When it it rains all over your picnic day? What should we do when all of our plans get shattered into a billion pieces? What should we do when the whole world seems to be enjoying comfort and luxury and ease that despite our best efforts, we don't seem to have access to? What should we do when persecution pops up from time to time, like James's audience? Or when everyone in the church around us starts slipping into a pattern of grumbling? What do we do? The answer is simple. The answer is incredibly simple. We remind ourselves of the purposes of the Lord. We draw our attention again and again and again back to his compassion and back to his great mercy towards us. The one who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Paul tells us in Philippians. Church, the gospel is not only the thing that saves you. No, no, no. Oh, no, no. It is also the thing that sustains you daily. By intentionally remembering what He has done, we can more easily trust the promises that He has made and then, oh then, we can get to work gladly completing the mission He has laid in our laps to complete. So have you placed your trust in Jesus and what He's done yet? That's a you question. Have you placed your trust in Jesus and what He has done yet? If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, we can fix that. The Bible teaches that because of our sin, we are all separated relationally from from God and that we are owed the just and right punishment for sin. One one of the ways the Bible describes that is to call it hell. I want to lovingly warn you this morning. The imminent return of the Lord is not good news for those who are separated from Him because of their sin. It's incredibly bad news. Because on that day, the perfect judge will give to all exactly what they deserve. So the question is, what do you deserve from him? It's a massive question. But listen, there's, there's not only a question to answer, there's good news to embrace. The good news of the gospel is that even while we are dead in our trespasses and sin, rightly deserving the wrath of God, God is rich in mercy. And he loves us with a great love, and even when we were dead in our trespasses, he makes us alive again through the grace of Christ. Okay, but how does he do that? The eternal Son of God put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that I can't live, and you can't live, and none of us can live, and he died on the cross as a uh, perfect substitute in our place to make payment for our sins, he tells us. He was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his righteousness and as a down payment for our own future resurrection, the Bible teaches. Now is the one who conquered sin and death, the king who stands victorious over the grave, uh, he calls on you to respond to him in repentance and faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that this morning. You can respond to Jesus, man, I'd love to be helpful to you. And this week, I can actually stick around instead of running off so I can talk to you. Last week, I said the same thing but forgot that we were supposed to do a baptism, so I ducked out the door, and Les Duncan was awesome. He came up here and was ready to serve, all right? But I'm here today. Good. Woo! Now, if you want to talk, let's talk. I'd love to be helpful to you. Okay, but what if you're here this morning and you're already a follower of Jesus? How can we respond to God's Word today? Well, we respond the same way as we do every single week. We repent of sin and we lean into what God reveals about himself in the text. And this week, I, I think that leaning in needs to take the shape of creating rhythms of remembrance. Rhythms of remembrance. Repetitive, functional, maybe even tactile things that help us remember his faithfulness and what he has already done for you. He's given us a couple of those rhythms in the life of the gathered church. In the last few weeks, we've, we've celebrated the Lord's Supper together. We've had a baptism together. Those are really, really great pictures because Jesus gave us those pictures. But those are also pictures given to the church. What about you personally? What do you have in your in, in your pocket to go back to when remembering gets hard? What are some rhythms in your own life that can help draw your eyes away from you, your immediate circumstances or your wannabe circumstances and place them instead on the goodness of Christ? I wish I could answer that question for you. I wish I could be that kind of practical, practical but I can't. What I can do though is give you three verses and a bridge to think about it for a while. So We're going to do that. Maybe here this morning you need to respond in some other kind of way. Perhaps you've been here for a while now, and God is calling you to, uh, to formally make NBC your, your church home. And maybe, maybe you got a lot of questions about that. You don't even know where to start. Okay, last I checked, we're not exactly scared of questions around here. Let's talk. Let's go. Maybe you've been a follower of Jesus for a while now, but you've never been obedient to His command to be baptized. That ain't cool. We can do something about that, too. Let's talk about that. Or maybe God's calling you to take the gospel somewhere far away from here and it's time to make that public calling uh, uh, out there for the church. And Man, I'd love nothing more this week than to help you think through what those next steps are. That sounds like a pretty fun week for me. But whoever you are and however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's all respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the book of James. Thank you for a, a call to patience. Thank you for story after story after story after story of your faithfulness. Both before our time and in our very own lives. Lift our eyes away from the circumstances around us or the circumstances we want and wish for. And onto the deeper beauty of who you are. You are more lovely than the grandest wish. You are more eternal than the surest investment. You're just better. Help us remember that being better when all the other stuff starts to look shiny. We love you. Thank you for loving us. Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you call them into your kingdom today? Open eyes to see your goodness. Open ears to hear your voice. Call men and women into your kingdom today. We love you. In Jesus name we pray.